Well, today we're, we're wrapping up our series right in my eye. We've been in the book of Judges, and the book of Judges basically records God's chosen people choosing to do what they want, when they want, how they want, and with whom they want. And, and, and it turned out really to be a, a tragedy. And what began as divine intervention and, and, and the divine mandate that God had given his people, because they were to show the world who God was by being different than the nations around them. But for about 330 or so years, they just were in this cycle. They would just constantly disobey God and God's word. And that led to disastrous consequences for them, which led them to, to crying out to God and saying, God, will you rescue us? Will you save us? Will you deliver us from our enemies? So this entire time, they were ping-ponging back and forth from obedience to disobedience. And the last verse in the book of Judges tells us why. It gives us commentary on it. And it tells us this was happening because everybody did what was right in his own eyes, in his own opinion, as he or she saw fit. And yet, in the midst of all their disasters, in the midst of all their disobedience, God just continued to deliver them over and over and over. Why? Because they were good? No, because God made a promise. He told the nation, I'm going to use you whether or not you want to be used. I'm going to bless the entire world through you whether or not you want to be used by me or not. So you can work with me or you can watch me work, but either way, I will fulfill my promise. And so today, we're going to look at a story of how God chose to fulfill his promise to bless the entire world. That in the middle of this dark time in the nation of Israel, God was in fact working and preparing the way for the very first Christmas. And so to do that, he used a couple of interesting people. God's going to use a woman who was actually so angry and so upset at God that she told others, hey, God's abandoned me. God doesn't care about me anymore. God, God's not looking out for me anymore. I look at my circumstances, I see no evidence that God cares about me. And the reality is that might be some of you here this morning, that in your own life you're feeling like, ah, I don't know, God. I don't know if you're looking out for me. I don't know if you're there. I don't know if you're caring about my circumstances. And if that's you this morning, I'm hoping, in fact, I'm praying that as we go through this this morning, that you can be encouraged that God does see, that God does know, and that God is working in your life. Well, today we're going to look at a story that's found in the book of Ruth. Some of you know the story. Uh, some of you may not know the story. Those of you who do know the story, you may not know that the story of Ruth happens during this period of time we've been talking about, during this period of time of Judges. And it was God's way of preparing the way for Christmas. So that's what we're doing today. We're diving into kind of a pre-Christmas story because we're in that transition weekend. So let's look at this together. We're going to look at Ruth chapter 1. Ruth chapter 1, turning your old, in the Bibles to the Old Testament. Right after Judges is the book of Ruth. And it says this in Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. It says, in the days when the what? When the who? When the, the judges ruled. That's what we've been talking about these last few weeks. It's in this season. When the day the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land of Israel. 
So a man from Bethlehem, so there's our Christmas story city, right? A man from Bethlehem, uh, uh, a man from Bethlehem and Judah took with, his, with him his wife and two sons, and they went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Now, where is Moab, you're wondering? Well, if you were in Israel, you'd head over to Utah. Is that where, is Moab in Utah? Yeah, so... Is that Utah? Is that what it is? Something like, no, it's not that Moab, for those of you who know that Moab. If you were up in the mountains in Jerusalem, right next to Jerusalem is Bethlehem. And if you were to be in Jerusalem or Bethlehem, if you would turn east and face east, and if you began to head down the mountain, head down the hill, you would eventually run into the Dead Sea. If you jumped in the Dead Sea and tried to swim across, which would be a little rough, but if you tried to swim across the Dead Sea, on the other side, there is the country of Moab. So, it says in verse 2, this, this family, this man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. So, it might be helpful this morning if you just pull out a piece of paper and jot some names down, because you might get a little confused. It'd be helpful to have these names. By the end, I hope you'll have a, a handful of names in your head, but, but it might be helpful to jot them down. So, we have Naomi and Elimelech. And they leave uh, Bethlehem and they go to Moab because there's famine in the region. And when they get there, their two sons marry Moabite women, which wasn't a good thing because God's law said don't marry foreign women because, or foreign men because we don't want you to get in a situation where your hearts are going to be turned away from me and, and you'll start to follow these false foreign gods. But they did it anyway. Well, time goes by and Elimelech dies. Time goes by, and, and their oldest son, Elimelech and Naomi's oldest son, dies. And then their youngest son dies. So, who's left? If you're tracking with me, who's left? We have who? We have Naomi and her two daughter-in-laws, who are foreign Moabite women, and there's Naomi living in this foreign land. Now, because of all this tragedy and suffering that Naomi went through, Naomi figures, listen, clearly God's against me. Clearly, God's not looking out for me. God has cursed me. He certainly isn't going to hear my prayers in this foreign land. So she eventually decides to leave Moab, go back up to Bethlehem. She tells her two daughter-in-laws, hey, it's been real. Have a good life. You stay here with your people. I'm heading back to go be with my people, try to start over and start a new life. I I'm out of here. But one of her daughter-in-laws is named Ruth. And Ruth says, no, 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 Naomi, I want to stay with you. Naomi's like, listen, that's not a good idea. I'm going to eventually die. Then you're going to be stuck in a foreign land, and, and that's going to be dangerous for you. That's not going to be a good thing. And then Ruth, in one of the most beautiful passages in all of ancient uh, literature, certainly in the Bible, she says this, and it might be a passage some of you are familiar with. She says back to Naomi in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 16, she says, Naomi, where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. And this is so powerful. She says, your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. And where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. In other words, Naomi, I'm going with you. You can't talk me out of it. You're stuck with me. So, so picture this. We have Ruth, a young Moabite widow, and we have uh, Naomi, an older Israelite widow, and they make their way up to Bethlehem. Somehow they survive the difficult journey. They get into town, and people are like, oh, there's Naomi. Uh, 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 who's that with Naomi? 
Where's her husband? Where, where's her two sons? They're like, hey, welcome home, Naomi. And in verse 20, she says this, don't call me Naomi anymore, she told them. I want you to call me what? I want you to call me Mara, which means bitter. She's like, I'm no longer Naomi. I'm bitter. I, I'm bitter. And they're like, well, why are you bitter? Verse 21, because the Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. And in that moment, it's almost as if Naomi's words are a microcosm of the entire nation of Israel at the time who were basically saying, God, we're bitter. What has happened? Where have you been? You've abandoned us to all of our enemies. You've brought misfortune upon us as a nation, even though in their case it was because they were doing their own thing and not following God. But here's something interesting. For Naomi, who was bitter, who thought God had abandoned her, it's interesting that 3,500 years later, you and I are sitting here this morning talking about Naomi, and we know her name. Because not only did God not abandon her, but she would end up being at the very center of the activity of God, only at the time she didn't know it yet. Verse 22, it tells us that Naomi and Ruth arrived back in Bethlehem during the time of the barley harvest season. Now, let me explain harvest season in the land of Israel. It's important to understand as, as, for this story. The law of Moses stated that when you would pick the grain off your property, when you would go through, you would harvest the grain. You would go through one time. And, and, and as you did that, whatever fell to the ground, whatever you didn't harvest through that one pass-through, you were to leave it. And then anybody who was poor or any of those people who were widows, they could come into your fields and whatever you missed, whatever fell to the ground, the leftovers, so to speak, that they could come in and that they could glean from, from, that, from, that, from your field. In that way, it was a provision that God made for the people to provide for the poor and for the widows. So Naomi says to Ruth, Ruth, I'm old, you're not, I need you to go into those fields, you need to glean from these fields, you need to gather, and we, whatever you gather, we're going to be able to sell so we can live or we can eat off of it so that we can live and survive. So Ruth goes into one of the random fields. Now you got to know, it's dangerous for a, for a woman to go do this and a woman to be alone. She has no protection. She's a, Ruth specifically, she's a foreigner. She's a Moabite woman. So this isn't necessarily a good situation, but she and Naomi are desperate. Well, the food that she chose to gather up the, the, the barley happened to belong to a wealthy landowner named Boaz. It turns out, and they don't know this at the moment, but it turns out Boaz is a relative of Naomi's deceased husband, Elimelech. Now, I just said a lot of names there, so I know you're like, okay, what's going on here? So the names we need to know right now are, are, are the old widow, what's her name? And the young uh, Moabite widow, what's her name? Ruth. And now we have a new dude in the story, what's his name? Boaz. Okay, and, so, so, and Boaz is a relative of Naomi's deceased husband. They don't know that at this part in the story. Boaz happens to be out in his fields one day, and he sees this foreign woman in his fields. And he asks his servants, hey, who is this woman? And they're like, well, well that's Ruth, and she's the daughter-in-law of Naomi. 
Boaz had actually heard the story of this Moabite woman who had left her family, who had left her country and and, and traveled with her mother-in-law. And here, this woman that he's heard about, she's in his fields. Boaz was impressed by that. In fact, he had a conversation later with Ruth, and he said to her in Ruth chapter 2, so flip over a page, Ruth chapter 2, verse 11, Boaz told her, I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland, and you came to live with, with a people that you did not know before. And then what Boaz says next is so out of character with everything else that was going on at that time in this period of the judges where everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. Rather than follow God and be obedient to God, they were doing their own thing. And he says to the, this to Ruth, he says in verse 12, may the Lord repay you for what you have done. And in that verse, we get a glimpse of the character of Boaz. Boaz is basically saying, listen, I still believe in God. I still believe that God is moving and acting and working in our lives and that he respects those who make good and honorable and right decisions. So Ruth, for what you have done, the verse goes on, may you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, the very God that Naomi thought had abandoned her, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Ruth, you've done an incredible thing. Ruth, you've done an honorable thing. May our God, the one true God, may he bless you. May he richly reward you. So then Ruth goes, or Boaz goes and tells the servants, hey everybody, this woman's an honorable woman. I know she's a foreigner. What she's done is incredible. You all leave her alone. She's under my protection. Once everybody heard that, Ruth was good. She could go into the fields. She, she had this covering now. Uh, he's taking care of her. He, he loves how incredible she is and, and how she was an honorable woman. And so she goes into the field and she just loads up on the food. Comes home that night to Naomi. And, and she has all this food. And Naomi's like, oh my goodness, I, I would have never expected you to get that much food. How, how, you, where were you gleaning? And Ruth says, well, I found favor with this guy. His name's Boaz. And in that moment, Naomi's like, Boaz, really? Oh my goodness, that's incredible. He's a distant relative of my late husband. So Ruth goes on and she continues to glean from the fields of Boaz. Time goes by and eventually Naomi says to to Ruth, she says, listen, I'm old, I'm going to die soon. And when I die, you're going to be on your own in a foreign land. You need a covering. You need to be married. We need to find you what we call in our country a kinsman redeemer, a kinsman redeemer, or as the NIV translates it, a guardian redeemer. Now, let me explain this kinsman redeemer thing because it's a big part of the story. A kinsman redeemer was a family member, maybe even a distant family member, who had the privilege and responsibility to act on behalf of one of their relatives who or family who might be in trouble or who might be in danger or might be in need. And so this kinsman redeemer would step in to rescue or deliver or redeem a person and their situation. There's basically three or four things a kinsman redeemer could do. If a family or family member fell into poverty, you could go to your kinsman redeemer and say, hey, I I need some help. Can you give me a loan? 
And some of you are like, man, I've been a kinsman redeemer for my family for years. On If that's the case, I'm tired of being kinsman redeemer. And so you could go to them. Or, or second, let's say you could repurchase their property that had been taken because of debt or some difficult circumstance. And so the kinsman redeemer could come in and repurchase that property because back then property you know, was more than us just moving around. The property was kind of everything back then. So they could step in and, and, and repurchase a property that had been given up. Third, another way to say it is if, if the situation was so bad and there was so much debt, people would oftentimes have to sell their children into slavery to pay the debt. That was a different type of slavery than we've had in the United States, but still they had to sell them into slavery. And, and so a kinsman redeemer would come in and repurchase the child or children out of slavery. And then fourth, the kinsman redeemer would be asked to provide a male heir if a male relative had died. In other words, if a male relative had died who didn't have any male children, so their lineage, so they couldn't continue, a kinsman redeemer, a family member, would actually step in, marry that person to help provide a male heir for that side of the family so that they could go on and their name could go on and their lineage could continue. So Naomi looks at Ruth and says, look, we need to find you a kinsman redeemer because my boys are dead. I'm old. I'm not going to have another heir. Uh, my, my bloodline isn't going to continue. So you need to take my place and, and, and you need to step in and, and, and you need to have the heir on behalf of our family. Now, it's risky business to be a kinsman redeemer for multiple reasons. But one of the reasons is when you marry someone, it means the kids that you have eventually, and their family members eventually get your estate. You tracking with me here? We have a foreign woman, a Moabite woman. If somehow she gets married to an Israelite, when, to Boaz in this case, when Boaz dies, their kids would get the estate, which is essentially saying that a portion of their estate would be going to foreigners. So it's a risky business, and it's, it's a sacrificial decision for somebody to be a kinsman redeemer. And so Ruth goes to Boaz in Ruth chapter 3, and I'd encourage you to read this whole story. It won't take you very long. In the most appropriate way that fit the culture at the time, she humbly asked Boaz, Boaz, would you be my kinsman redeemer? Knowing it'd be a huge risk for him, knowing he'd probably say no. Boaz says yes. But there's a hitch. And remember, Boaz is this person who we've already seen who's just trying to do what's right in God's eyes and be an honorable man. So he mentions the hitch that, that other people may not do. And he mentions there's a hitch and he says, there's a relative that's even closer to Naomi than me. And he gets first dibs on the property and thus you as well. And you see in this story, Boaz is truly an honorable man. That even though everybody else had abandoned God's law at the time, Boaz says, no, this is what it says. This is how it works. I'm going to honor God. I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to still be faithful to God. So Boaz goes to this other relative and says, look, you get first right of refusal for this property and, of course, you know, everything that comes with it. Then let's look at this verse. Flip over another page or two to Ruth chapter 4, verse 5. Ruth chapter 4, verse 5. He's talking to this other relative that's closer to Naomi's dead husband than, than Boaz is. And he says, 
Verse 5, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, because that's kind of how it works. You get everything. The dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. In other words, if you buy the land, Ruth comes with it. And of course, as the kinsman redeemer in this situation, that means you'll have to have children with this, this foreign woman. And if she has a son, that son gets part of your estate. Are you willing to do that? Again, this is risky business to do this. And we see that in the next verse, verse 6. At this point, the kinsman redeemer or guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. That's what we're talking about. This is a big risk to do. And he was like, I'm not going to do this. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. It's too risky. I don't know which of her relatives are all of a sudden going to show up at my doorstep from Moab. I don't know what they're going to want from me. I don't, I don't know what's going to happen with my own kids. So I, I don't want it. I don't want her. You take it. Verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. That could be the end of the story. One honorable man in a culture who, who chose to still follow God even though others weren't. He chose to still be faithful to God, who took a risk on a Moabite woman, woman in order to honor his distant relative, not even a close relative, a distant relative, to make sure she had covering and protection. And we can leave the story there, and, and it would be good. Except God had made a promise to Israel. And God keeps his promises. We sang, you listen to Trevor sing the song, his promises never fail. And even though Israel wasn't going to cooperate, they were going to keep doing what was right in their own eyes. Even though that was happening, God was not going to back down from what he promised. And so, Ruth and Boaz are married. And they have a son. Again, if you have your pen out, you might want to start jotting some of this down. Uh, Ruth and Boaz are married. They have a son, and, his, and their son's name is Obed. And there's just this tender part of the story where old grandma Naomi takes, in, in, in Ruth chapter 4, verse 16, she takes baby Obed into her arms, and it says that she cared for him. And it's like Naomi comes to this new place in her life, and she realizes, I have felt like God abandoned me. I felt like I was all alone. I felt like God was not with me, and, and, and I had given up on God because God had certainly given up on me. But now she comes to this place and realizes and knows as she's looking at this child, she realizes, oh my goodness, God didn't abandon me. God is alive. And God has been gracious to me and allowed me to live long enough to hold this baby. I've actually seen with my own eyes how God has redeemed me and he has redeemed my family. Incredible moment. Well, Naomi, of course, eventually dies. Boaz eventually dies, and Ruth eventually dies. Then their son, who's their son? Who's Ruth and Bo's son? Obed. Obed grows up. He gets married. He has a son. Obed's son is named Jesse. Jesse grows up, gets married. He has a whole lot of sons. And one day, the prophet Samuel shows up at his door and says, Hey, Sam, hey, hey Jesse. I'm here because God has a message for somebody in your family. I'm here to anoint one of your sons, the next king of Israel. 
Jesse's like, sweet, I'm going to be the father of the next king. This works out great. I got so many sons. I don't know. This is going to work great. So he lines them all up. And some of them look like kings. Some of them have the characteristics and attributes of what you would think would be a king. And they're all lined up. And Samuel's like, nope, 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 nope. Is, is this all you have? He's like, well, you know, I do have my youngest son. He's out in the fields. He's, he's tending sheep. Um, Sam was like, well, go get him. So, so they go call for the youngest son. And then onto the pages of history walks in who? Walks in David. And Samuel says, he's the one. So David was anointed and eventually becomes the second king of Israel. David. David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz. And Boaz was the husband of Ruth, the Moabite woman who was faithful to her Jewish mother-in-law, Naomi. It's an incredible story. Well, years later, another prophet shows up, and his name's Nathan. And he comes to David. David's now the king. And he comes to David, and he says, I have a message from God for you. And this is something, David, that God wants you to know. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16. And Nathan said, here's God's message to you. Here's God's word to you. And he looked at David and he told him, your house and your kingdom will endure for a couple days. Is that what it says? Your house and your kingdom will endure how long? How long? Forever before me. Your throne will be established how long? forever. And so from that day forward, Jewish people, they knew if there was going to be a Messiah, Jewish people, if they knew there was going to be a Savior, Jewish people knew that if there was going to be a king whose throne would be established forever, this king would come from the lineage of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, who was the husband of Ruth, the foreign Moabite woman, woman who is the daughter-in-law of Naomi. Now, in the New Testament, Matthew starts off his gospel with the lineage. And in the middle of it, it picks up. So he's, he, he, this is how it starts off. And so if you ever need like, you know, you're having a hard time going to sleep, read, you know, Matthew chapter 1. And, you know, you just kind of read the lineage here, and you're like, okay, I got it, I got it. But anyway, he's reading that, and in the middle of it, as he's doing this lineage of people, in the middle of it, it picks up part of our story here. And it meant, he, Matthew mentions, then there's Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed was the father of who, anybody? Jesse. Jesse's the father of who? David. And it keeps going. David had a son, who had a son, who had a son, and 20-something pregnancies later, as the gospel writer Matthew is listing out this family tree, he gets to the last few in the lineage, and he says, Matthew chapter 1, verse 15, Eleazar, the father of Nathan, Nathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of who? The mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. 25 or so pregnancies after Ruth and Boaz have Obed. Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, is born on Christmas Day. And throughout the ministry of Jesus' life, he would re be referred to as the Son of David, 
who is the son of Jesse, who is the son of Obed, who is the son of Ruth and Boaz. And Ruth was the Moabite woman. And so that's how Ruth and Bo, they saved Christmas for all of us. That we sit here today. But Ruth and Bo never knew back then how important this story was. They never knew that they were an important, fragile link in the story of God. They had no idea that about a thousand years later, many generations down the line, this man with his pregnant fiance would make their way up to Bethlehem and give birth to the king of Israel, the savior of the world. Why? Because God fulfills his promises. God never gave up on his people. God's promises will endure forever. There are so many reasons for us to praise God and to love him. He fulfills his promises. Even though it was a period of time when people were choosing to do whatever they want, with whom they want, how they want, when they want. But God said, I'll be faithful. Why? Well, in the midst of all that, God chose to use somebody, an honorable man and an honorable woman that God chose to use to redeem his people to eventually bring in his son, Jesus, the savior of the world, who would be our kinsman redeemer. All going back to the faithfulness of two, Ruth and Boaz. Now, here's the amazing thing, and this is so huge, i just take a couple more minutes, so, so hang with me. Years later, Jesus, the great, 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 25 you know, generations later grandson of Ruth and Boaz, he's standing before Pontius Pilate, who's the governor of Judea of the entire region. And Pilate asked Jesus a question just moments before Pilate's going to execute him. Pilate asked Jesus, he said, are you a king? Are you a king? What did Nathan say to David? Your kingdom will be established forever. Your lineage will be established forever. And Jesus looked him straight in the face and staring down all of Rome, and Jesus said, it is as you say. In other words, yes, I am a king. In fact, I was born for this. But don't un- misunderstand me, Pilate. John chapter 18, verse 36, Jesus looked at him and said, my kingdom is not of this world. In other words, my kingdom is a kingdom of the heart. It's not me simply being the king of the Jews. I've come to rule and I've come to reign. And I've come to do that in the hearts of all people. Yes, I'm a king, but I'm not a king as you think. And so, as we conclude this series and as we head into this incredible season of celebration, I want to invite you to be part of the Christmas story this morning. I want to invite you to consider something that maybe a few of you have never done before. And some of you, it's time to recommit this decision you've made. And that is simply deciding, God, instead of sitting on the throne of my own heart, where I get to decide and do what I want, when I want, how I want, with whom I want, instead of doing that, instead of living my life the way I want, God, in this season, I want to recognize Jesus as the king who's my king who's my kinsman redeemer. And I want to yield the throne of my heart to him. I want to invite him to rule and to reign in my life. I want to invite you to that this morning. See, God is working. And maybe you don't always see it. 
Naomi certainly didn't see it. Boaz leading up to all this, he didn't necessarily see it. Ruth didn't necessarily see it. But as the story unfolded, they started to see what God was doing, that God was indeed working in their life. And our story reminds you and I that God is looking for people whose hearts are fully committed to him, who will not choose to do what's right in their own eyes, but will do what's right in the eyes of God. So there is no better time and there is no better season to put your faith in Jesus as your Savior, as your kinsman redeemer, to yield your heart to the King, There's no better time to declare, I'm done. I'm done trying to live my life, doing what I want, when I want, how I want, with whom I want. So God, here's my life. I want you to take it and use it for your kingdom and for your glory. Boaz did that and Ruth did that. And if you allow Jesus to do that in your life, he will revolutionize you on the inside. And he will revolutionize your life and your lifestyle on the outside. So I ask you, are you ready? Are you ready to yield your heart to Jesus?